rootslandnation.com Wear your culture. 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 Henry K. Henry K. Productions. Broadcasting live and direct from the rolling red hills on the outskirts of Kingston, Jamaica. From a magical place at the intersection of words, sound, and power. The red light is on. Your dial is set. The frequency in tune to the Rootsland podcast. Stories that are music to your ears. Hey, Kiryu, you like Chinese food? You're asking me if I like Chinese food? Jamaica have the best Chinese food in the world. Bob, that's a pretty bold statement. I'm from Long Island, New York. Chinese food is like a religion. After slavery was abolished in the 19th century, the British still needed laborers to work the plantations and estates of their colonized Caribbean islands. Tens of thousands of Chinese arrived as indentured workers, lured to the New World for a better life, if not for themselves, for their children and grandchildren. Signing long-term contracts for low wages, they endured harsh living conditions and backbreaking labor. For those who stayed in Jamaica, the sacrifice paid off. With savings from their small salaries, they established roots, built shops, and set up businesses. Unlike the slaves from Africa, who were forced on ships and stripped of their identities. Many of the Chinese who came to the island had the advantage of maintaining theirs, a connection to a history and family back home that helped them grow and flourish. This allowed the Chinese Jamaicans to keep many of their traditions, like language, holidays, and to quote Bob Andy, the best Chinese food in the world. The security guard waved us into a well-lit parking lot in an upscale plaza. A silver F-150 pickup with its window open pulled alongside us. Bob, Bob Andy, wait, long time no see you. How are you doing, man? <laughs> Not as good as you, minister. How is the lovely wife? Actually, it is funny that you, you, you should ask because actually the two of us are attending your show in Morgan's Harbor in a few weeks. <laughs> We're looking forward to a nice show, you know. I hope you don't be too political and burn too much fire. What about I make your deal? <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. If you can solve the country's problem by the time it gets around to my show, I won't burn any fire. I won't have to burn any fire. Air conditioning. For the first time all day, real first world air conditioning. Gordon's was on the second floor and one of New Kingston's hottest restaurants with a menu that featured some of the best fusion Chinese in town. A modern island feel, designer teak wood tables rested under hanging linen banners with Chinese calligraphy. Jamaica's national motto is out of many, one people. And the crowd dining at Gordon's lived up to it. It was a multicultural blend of the island's various nationalities and races. An exotic mix of beautiful people of all shades and hues. It looked like the VIP section of a Drake after-party. I enjoyed a frozen fruit punch. It quenched a thirst that had been building all day. The smell of spices filled the air. I melted into my seat. 
and as much as I was able to relax and drift away into a delicious meal, every time I looked at Bob, it brought me back to reality. His reality. In his classic song, Bob Andy sings, the ghetto stays in the mind, right where it's been all the time. Heading back into the ghetto for Bob was like a soldier returning to the scene of a battle. It triggered a form of PTSD, survivor's guilt mixed with memories of violence, betrayal, and loss. The battle he was still fighting, but Bob Andy was a street fighter. Right now, he had a bigger challenge, the fight going on in the boardroom at Tough Gun. Because on the streets, you know your enemies. In the corporate boardroom, they're all your enemies. It's as simple as that, Bridget. Bob Andy ordered another fruit punch and advised I do the same. Kiryu, you want another drink? By the time he finished telling me what was happening at Tough Gong, I had polished off two rum punches. And I don't know what was making my head spin more, the alcohol or the story. On May 11, 1981, the mighty Tough Gong Robert Nesta Marley lost his fight with cancer surrounded by his loved ones in a Miami hospital. In his last year alive, Bob Marley went from performing sold-out shows at Madison Square Garden in New York City to clinging to life at a cold Bavarian clinic thousands of miles away from his home. And by all accounts, Bob fought with everything he had to stay alive. He underwent experimental treatments, which included restrictive diets his mother called starvation, and therapies described as physical and emotional torture. A man deep in faith, I'm not sure if he accepted or even believed he was going to die. But Bob Marley, who came from nothing, who grew up in a slum that was bulldozed by the government to become one of the wealthiest singers in the world, died without leaving a will for his wife and children. A decision that would throw his family into turmoil and begin a protracted legal battle with more twists and turns than a John Grisham novel. Yes, I heard people say, 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 say. The events surrounding Bob's cancer diagnosis, treatment, and death have been the subject of endless conspiracy theories. Everything from CIA assassination plots to Nazi doctors and voodoo curses. All I know is on that misty Miami day, the world lost a voice that stood up for the oppressed, that fought for the dignity of men and inspired generations from all over the world to be better people, to wake up and live. His last words to his oldest son, Ziggy, was money can't buy life. Unfortunately for the Marley family, they would learn the hard way what money does buy. Oh, what a rat race. The cramped hospital room in Miami was a long way from the Trenchtown streets where Rita Marley fell in love with Bob all those years ago. Now she was alone with her children and the sharks were circling. Bob had an entourage of musicians, friends, lawyers, all sorts of hanger-ons. Some looked to him for guidance, some for inspiration, and frankly, some just for money. On last year's list of Forbes magazine's wealthiest dead celebrities, the singers whose estates earned the most money were Michael Jackson, Elvis Presley, and Bob Marley who came in ahead of John Lennon, George Harrison, and Prince. He was a one-man cottage industry, 
that supported hundreds of people through his tough gong music and his world tours. Not to mention his generosity to the less fortunate that would line up every day at his home on Hope Road to get help from the skipper, as they called him. Now everyone had advice from Mrs. Marley. They were staking claims, plotting their angles, and throwing the estate into further disarray, adding insult to injury. Seven other children came forward claiming that Bob was their father, all from different mothers. Well, man to man is so unjust. You don't know who to choose, you know? Choo-choo. With no written will and the future of the Marley estate at risk, Sister Rita trusted the wrong people. In the end, Bob Marley's New York-based lawyer and accountant were found guilty on U.S. federal charges of forgery, fraud, and mismanagement of funds. The Jamaican government and the courts intervened. They removed Mrs. Marley as the administrator of the estate, replacing her with a conservative lawyer who disliked Bob Marley when he was alive and now seemed determined on making life as difficult as possible for the surviving family members. The politicians and government, businessmen and lawyers, everything and everyone Bob Marley spent his life fighting against now controlled his legacy and future. Although Mrs. Marley was allowed to run Tough Gong and on the board of directors, her foes were doing their best to sabotage and discredit her. It had all the intrigue of an HBO miniseries, Grieving Widow, the greedy board members, family drama with long-lost children. All this made Bob Andy's job impossible. He was trying to build a label. Behind the scenes, the powers that now control Tough Gong were trying to tear it down and sell it off. At the moment, things were looking dire for the Marley family. But Bob Andy assured me, never count out Sister Rita. There's no force in the universe more determined than a mother fighting for her children. No woman, no cry, you know. Because in the end, every little thing going to be all right. You know? The Indies felt more like a guest house than a hotel, with about a dozen or so rooms scattered around a renovated Caribbean colonial-style home. Bob dropped me off in the parking lot. I walked across the wooden floors of the lobby to the reception area and handed over my reservation number and passport. Good evening, Mr. Henry. I'm Janelle. Hi, Janelle. Good evening. Nice to see you. I took your reservation when you called. Okay. I remember you were telling me about you being excited to come to Jamaica and work at the Top Gong Studios. Uh-huh, I remember that. How was your flight, by the way? Well, less eventful than the rest of my day. Thank you. Since you'll be staying with us for a while, the policy is that we keep your credit card on file uh-huh. as we will charge you at the end of each week. Okay, I can do that. And as I mentioned, the rate includes breakfast, which is served at the restaurant every single morning at 7 a.m. And it is Jamaican-style breakfast with ackee and saltfish, boiled bananas, and johnny cakes, which are fried dumplings, of course. So I do hope that you love Jamaican food. While Janelle was doing her paperwork, I took a peek into the restaurant, located just outside the lobby. It had a small bar in the back where soft R&B music played. A group of businessmen, still wearing their work clothes, sat at a table, with empty pints of rum and an ashtray full of cigarettes. They were flirting with a tall, dark waitress with short jean shorts and long legs. Janelle handed me to the key of the room and pointed me to my home for the next few months. Mr. Henry, please enjoy your stay in Kingston. It was clean, simple, with white-tiled floors. A light switch by the door turned on the AC unit in the window. It sounded like a car trying to shift into gear. I kept waiting for it to kick in and quiet down, but it never did. 
When Dr. Dredd told me not to expect hot water, I thought he was joking. But the faucet handles weren't even marked hot or cold. I went down to the restaurant to get some bottled water for the room. The bartender had stepped away, so I sat at the bar and watched the waitress work her magic with her customers. Long braids flowed way down her back, highlighting the curves of her body. And like a dancer, she twisted in between the seats, wiping down the table and clearing glasses. She made a beeline for the kitchen with her hips swaying to the beat of the music, one hand high above her head holding a tray full of cups and bottles, a performance thoroughly enjoyed by her table. Excuse me? While I was preoccupied with her show, I hadn't even noticed that someone had sat next to me at the bar. Hey Tex, what's happening? I'm Henry. Yeah, man. Now you're saying that music at work, you know? Yes, I am. I guess word travels fast around here. Brother, you soon learn the secrets of Kingston, you know? You know how in every Vietnam War movie, there's always a scene in a GI bar with a Hanoi pimp trying to hustle a U.S. serviceman? At first, that's the vibe I got from Tex. He had a light brown complexion, Asian features, and a crooked smile. Gold rings on every finger and a fat chain around his neck. Tex was short and built menacingly stocky. His most noticeable feature, a disfigured right arm that had been nearly chopped off while defending himself against a machete attack when he was younger. He had a bad boy look that would fit into any barrio in East L.A., favela in Brazil, or slum in Manila. No matter where you saw him, you would run. Tex reached into his front shirt pocket and threw down a handful of what I thought were candies on the bar. But it was actually marijuana. Small, individually marble-sized balls of weed, tightly wrapped in clear plastic, twisted on both sides like a Tootsie Roll. Each was about a joint's worth. He told me they sold for about five Jamaican dollars, or one U.S. This name's Skunk, Henry. The best weed in a town. As well as a gift from Tex, you know? Thanks, Tex, but I know a Rasta that claims his cousin has the best in town. Yeah, man, go on, well, I'm Tex lit up a cigarette and then dropped the pack on the bar next to his red stripe. He hollered for the waitress to come over. Yo, Slim Gal, Romy. Come meet Henry. Big music producer from foreign, you know? From America. Yeah, man, can make you famous. Sure. Tex, whatever you say. May I go quit my job right now? Bumbo Cloud, you can't easy. Hello? Henry? Yeah, that's me. I'm Romy. Nice to meet you. Hi, Romy. It's a pleasure. It's true for you what them say? Well, that depends what they say. You in Jamaica for working on music? Well... Yeah, I'm trying music. I'm going to give it a go. You must give me a listen sometime. Okay. I can't sing, you know? I can't sing a little DJ, too. Sing and DJ. Double threat. All right, listen. Me Zagger, I'm going to fight over, man. No, my son, good. <laughs> Not sure. All right, what else you have? Me have a sexy body, body, sexy body. Me have a sexy. Don't my sound good. Well, you know, maybe I'm not the best judge. Dancehall really isn't my thing. How you mean dancehall not your thing? You're too out of touch, man. And what? You're gonna put me in touch? <laughs> dancehall music on the road. You soon see for yourself. Anyway, it's still not my thing. Anyways. Romy went back to her table. Tex took a big gulp of his red striped beer and then sprung from his bar stool. Kanecho, kanecho. Yo, Jamanisko. Kiko, Nico. You come over to bar, man. You ready to head out? Tex introduced me to a group of Japanese reggae fans that strolled into the bar. They were in town on vacation. The guys decked out in American-style hip-hop gear. 
baggy jeans and oversized tees. The girls in Kingston's latest dancehall trends, they were pretty revealing outfits. Tech spoke to them, slow and deliberate. He added a Japanese inflection to his thick Jamaican accent, if somehow that made them understand him better. When they responded to him, I was surprised to hear it was not in broken English as I expected. It was in Jamaican patois. I knew from Ross Records that the Japanese were some of the biggest consumers of reggae music. It was an obsession that began, like the rest of the world in the 70s, with Bob Marley. By the early 80s, reggae and dancehall had exploded, and Japanese cities from Osaka to Tokyo were overflowing with young fans, flocking to reggae record shops, nightclubs, and even an annual series of sold-out arena concerts called Japan Splash, which featured both Jamaican and Japanese reggae artists. Now, the latest trend were Japanese reggae tourists, a mix of obsessed fans, music producers, singers, and dancers, all coming to Kingston in order to one-up their competition back home by immersing themselves deep into Jamaican culture. These weren't your ordinary tourists, smoking blunts on the beaches of Ocho Rios. These Japanese were hardcore. They ventured into the most dangerous ghetto areas, attending obscure and out-of-the-way street dances, places where even the police didn't go. There was a reason why these foreign superfans felt safe heading into the belly of the beast. They had protection. If you were from Japan and you traveled to Jamaica in the 80s or 90s, there was only one name you had in your phone book. Tex. No, thank you, Tex. I'm going to take a rain check. Maybe I'll try out one of your samples tonight. I signed the bottle of Blue Mountain Spring Water to my room and left a U.S. dollar on the bar. Of course it was warm, like everything else on this island. Tex and the Japanese posse gave me fist bumps on my way out. After taking a few steps towards the door, I turned around quickly to see if I left anything on the bar. Tex was staring right at me, giving me the kind of look that someone gives you when they're sizing you up, as if he was formulating a plan and wondering how I fit in. As it turns out, the more interesting story was how Tex fit into my plan. Because without Tex, there was no plan. Rootsland Podcast is produced by Henry Kane Association with Vicebox Studios. Make sure that I then click the link below, you know. Make sure you click the link below. Like, share, and subscribe. So join the Roots Gang and Rootsland. Yes, Rasta. Don't worry about a thing. Because every little thing is going to be alright.